My parents live in Pennsylvania near the tri-state border with New York and New Jersey. In fact, five generations of my family have been at Twin Lakes, Pennsylvania in the high country of Pike County. When I go home to visit mom and dad, if I don't rent a car, another way I can get to their place is by flying to Newark Airport just outside New York City and then taking the New Jersey Transit train to Port Jervis, New York. Port Jervis is an old railroad town as the Erie Railroad Line caused much of the growth of this town in the early 20th century. Port Jervis is across the Delaware River from Matamoras, Pennsylvania, and about one mile from the New Jersey border. I remember when I was younger visiting a restaurant in Port Jervis called Flojeans. On the walls of the restaurant were framed photographs of large chunks of ice pushed up near the restaurant. These ice chunks were caused by an ice jam flood, a type of flood that occurs when large chunks of ice broken up in the river jam near a pinch point or a sharp turn. The ice jam dams water from flowing downstream and can cause the water to back up into riverine communities. Port Jervis and Matamoras experienced substantial ice jam floods in 1875, 1904, and 1981. The ice jam of February 1981 caused the highest flood level on record in Port Jervis. I spent 36 days in the Northeast States during November and December 2021. I worked remotely during this time and enjoyed reconnecting with my family. As I used the time to research stories for the GeoTrek podcast, ice jams emerged as an unusual but important hazard that is often misunderstood. A strange fact I learned about ice jams is that they are more common during low water flows in the river. The 1981 ice jam flood struck just three days after Pennsylvania Governor Rick Thornburg proposed a drought declaration for many counties, including Pike. The low flow on the Delaware River enabled it to freeze more substantially, leading to the ice jam. A headline in the Pike County Dispatch after the flood read, Low water caused the flood. This setup is opposite nearly all other inland floods, which are usually caused by heavy rainfall, soil saturation, and high river levels. However, in an ice jam flood, rainfall and soil saturation are less important as the water source is coming from the dammed up river. This podcast covers insights about ice jams and provides interviews with two local professionals and two local residents who have been impacted by ice jams through the years. Their perspective helps us understand more about the rapid onset of these floods and their complex nature. On this podcast, we have interviews with several different people. The first interview is with Tom Vicciarello, the Director of Emergency Management with the City of Port Jervis, New York. Tom, I appreciate you taking time. We were talking yesterday about ice jam floods. It seems like this is something that happens periodically there in Port Jervis and and Matamoras, Pennsylvania, across the river. And uh, you were sharing sometimes that can actually happen when when the flows are lower and the river levels down. Is that right? You know, people really don't understand that, that that's one thing that we have to be always con- concerned about during the winter to make sure that the flow of the river the, is high enough to keep ice from forming on the bottom of the river. So a low flow, it can more freeze through if we had a really deep cold snap. Yeah, low flow is dangerous for us because then the ice can freeze from the bottom up and the top down. I see. So it can more thoroughly kind of freeze through and then uh, I, I guess get thicker ice, theoretically. Right. The, the year of the big ice jam, it was very, very heavy, thick, two to three foot 
thick ice chunks. So really the bad combination, like back in 1981, would be a, a, a long dry period with extremely cold weather, and then I guess a warm up with a heavy rain, is that correct? Yes, yeah, so basically that's exactly it. That year we had extremely, extremely dry summer, and the flows on the river after September 2nd are not regulated where they have to keep the flow up to a certain amount. So that was one factor. And then the other factor was come December, we had extremely cold weather, like 25 below on Christmas day. And it just continued. And then all of a sudden, after all that ice had formed in the beginning of February, we had warmer weather with heavy rains, like two inch rainfalls, which caused some of the ice to come out and then it, it jammed up. And following that, the temperature dropped significantly again, where it was made all that ice freeze all together and form a natural dam. Then the second week, we had the heavy rain again, which caused the ice jam for Port Jervis. So it seems like a quite complex flood process, but one where when you know the ingredients, you could kind of see them coming together for some time. Yes, we um, obviously living here in the river valley, we always have to watch the river, keep checks on the river all winter long to see how much ice is forming and how thick it is. Yeah, that makes sense. And Tom, it seems like some of the real problem areas for damming up are a little bit downriver from Port Jervis, I guess, where there's a sharp turn in the river and also the large island down there. Could you speak a little bit about that, about um, those those places where it really tends to jam up? Yeah, that, that's correct. It's down a little bit south of us, so it's really on the one border is on the Pennsylvania side, the other border is on the New Jersey side, where the Delaware makes a turn to go down towards Milford. And there's a large island in the middle of the river called Meshippacon Island, which really caused the ice to jam up. If you looked at that island prior to the second ice jam, and you looked across, it looked like a natural bridge of ice all the way from the Matamoras from the Pennsylvania side all the way to the Jersey side. So basically just the ice completely jamming up there on the island. Yeah, it was jammed on, yes, it was completely jammed, like a big dam or a bridge, or it was completely dammed up all the way across from uh, one river bank to the other. And that water's really backing up from there, then upstream towards Port Jervis and Matamoras. Well, obviously that's what caused, when the second ice jam came down, where it was jammed up across the by Meshippagon, it didn't make it through, and that's what caused the Delaware to back up so rapidly and to flood Port Jervis. I see. That makes sense. So um, really, the, the two jams there are kind of working together to back water up into the communities. Tom, we were talking a little bit about some things that can be done. I mean, we can't stop Mother Nature, but there are some things that can be done. And you were explaining how I think Port Jervis, Matamoros, and, and Montague got together and um, put in some money in, in partnership with the U.S. Army Corps. Could you explain a little bit about some of those things that were done to uh, help alleviate and mitigate against ice jams? Yes, that is correct. Um, after the flood, obviously there was a lot of concern why it happened, why, what could have been done, and for mitigation promises, um, the Army Corps of Engineers came in because they basically controlled the river and did a study, and the study found that there were some very, very large trees on the Shippacon Island that added to the ice jamming, and uh, so the ice couldn't get through. 
So after that study, with help of the federal government, Army Corps engineers, uh, the three towns, Port Jervis, Matamoros, and Montague, chipped in a little bit, and um, some work was done on that island to mitigate it, to take out some of the much larger trees. So if we did have the same situation again, the water would be able to flow. I see. So, so really, um, cutting down some of those trees to let the water flow better over the island, so so the ice is less likely to get hung up on the on the trees in the future. And, and Tom, you mentioned also a widening the channel right to the to the left of the river, or to the left of. The well, they ba ba basically they dug it deeper to uh, en enable, I guess, a, a I guess a deeper channel with uh, hopefully more flows to allow water to to kind of have a place to go. Yes, that's, that's, that's correct. Uh, the main flow of the river going downstream, the main flow was always to the right of the river. So this was more or less a, a valve to accept some of that extra water where it could flow around the left side of the island easier. It makes sense, just uh, giving a place for the water to go so hopefully it won't be backed up as much. Tom, appreciate your insights on this. Any Any other last thoughts or perspectives that you think could help people out as they think about ice jams, not only in Port Jervis, but just around the country, places that are susceptible to this? Well, obviously, a situation like ours, it's it's not something that you can handle the last week of this, of the of the year or whatever. It's something you have to watch continuous, continuously all year to make sure things are progressing the way they should and to take precautions if things are looking like in our, in our situation here, hopefully that the river flow can be high enough all winter to keep the ice from getting too thick and from the ice to be forming from the bottom up. Tom, is there really anything that can be done once an ice jam forms or is it pretty much all we can do is kind of watch and see what happens? Well, there's different theories about that. Um, one theory is that um, you could come, come in with some small dynamite and uh, open it up, but then that only creates problems for some other town downriver. So that's not the most best way to handle it. And so it, another um, thing that's been tried with cranes and things with balls to try and break the ice jam up. But there again, that you don't want to send too much ice down river to make somebody else have the same situation you do. I see what you're saying. So if you break up the river and it, if you break up the ice and it helps you, it's still going downstream and potentially going to jam up for some other downstream community. That's one of the main concerns. Yes. Yeah, Tom, appreciate you coming on GeoTrack. Thank you so much for your perspective. It looks like a mild winter so far in the Northeast this winter. So hopefully there won't be any troubles with ice jams. Well, we have our fingers crossed. <laughs> okay, thank you. I recorded that interview with Tom on January 4th. Up to that point, the Northeast had seen a pretty mild winter so far, but things changed soon after that, unfortunately. We'll talk a little bit more about the seasonal outlook for ice jams later in this podcast. The next interview was with Bill Clark, president of the Matamoros Westfall Historical Society and long-term resident of Matamoros, Pennsylvania. The conversation picks up as I asked Bill to describe his eyewitness account of the 1981 ice jam flood. It sounded like the river was really erratic too, is that right? You yes, Sharon? It, it was, uh, well my, my personal experience with it was uh, we only live a couple blocks from the river. Okay. And of course all the old timers used to go up, you know, when there was a flood concern 
and we'd actually stand on Delaware Drive and watch the river. Sure. You know, we didn't listen to any of the sure. so-called authorities. <laughs> the so. media, you're, you're like, I want to go and see it, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we had our personal concern and we had our personal, uh, you know, experience from going back. But anyway, one of the things about the 81 uh, uh, Ice Jam was that the river was full of ice and it was very high, the highest I had ever seen it. With the water ice. level. And uh, as I watched it, uh, it would move a little bit and stop, and then move a little bit, which was creepy. And I, so this isn't your typical thing where the river is just flowing. It, no, it's it's this, moving and stopping. This, and this was prior to to the flood that that was caused by the ice jam. It oh, was, these are in the days before. Well, yes, and it, and it, and just before the flood, the day of the flood, even. Uh, I think it flooded, uh, what, late in the evening, didn't it? It was really overnight, I think, yeah. the, the worst of it. Right. Well, anyway, uh, that day, uh, we came up and we're watching it, and the river was just full of ice right up to the top of the bank. and uh, But it would move a little bit and then stop and then move a little bit and stop. And of course, I knew what was happening. Right, if, if you know about it damming up, that's yes. a concern. It's jammed, it's jammed down in the elbow of the river, where it always jams. Uh, but this meant to me that it was compacting. You know, the, as the water level rose, the ice would either override or push under, but you but could see- It's it. not flowing through. No, it's not flowing through. And, uh, it was just moving slowly, and uh, so that was the the uh, concern. Now, yeah. the sun was up there uh, when it actually flooded, and uh, he said they were standing there, and all of a sudden the whole river seemed to rise up. The whole it came up quickly over the guardrails, and the water was coming through the guardrails. So they started running back here in Matamoros. Yes, so they they came running back. But what happened at the same time, which saved Madame Morris, was when it did that, it finally broke through and overrode the ice below Madame Morris. And so that was a thing, like kind of getting it to push through that dam. Yes. And part of that push through was through the lower end of Madame Morris, by the way. It went down through the streets, and uh, that was uh, pretty. Uh, Pretty concerning, really. And it seemed like water flooded, would you say dozens of homes or hundreds of homes or uh, how many? I would say dozens of homes. One of the things that the, the older homes with the uh, stone foundations and the cement foundations, uh, they were they held up pretty good. Now, the ones with the uh, block ba uh, basements, the block uh, foundations, didn't fare so well because what happens is the water comes up and it acts like the the foundation acts like a dam and of course a, a block wall doesn't hold very well With, there was even one house down on 10th street that was sitting there and on all four corners and all four walls had been put shoved in wow. uh, and i think we have a picture of that somewhere what damage was done by the force of water and what damage was done by ice pushing on buildings or yes, was it some combination, was a combination of both yes that, that particular flood, uh, I had a friend in, uh, on Ave Noel, and uh, we went down, and, and I sort of knew what to expect. So we, what we did is we uh, barricaded his cellar windows. He had an older home, and if you can barricade your cellar windows while the flood is up, you know, usually they come up yeah. and they go down quite yeah. rapidly. 
So uh, we barricaded his windows and it was fine. However, uh, and we, he had to leave because he was on the lower end of Mount Morris. But when he went back, he had half a cellar full of water. And what happened, he had had some chimney work where they had disturbed the foundation. And that water found that little uh, yeah. fault and uh, went in. But otherwise, he would have been all fine. Um, that's one of those little things. Did you know of cases where maybe ice pushed in or broke through windows, things like yes. that? Uh, there was one building on Avenue, uh, on, Delaware, on Pennsylvania Avenue, that was very obvious where it had broken through, and there was ice actually jammed in the window and uh, allowing the water to go around it. So possibly ice broke the window there. Yes, yes, the ice broke the window. This person I'm talking about where we blockaded the window, that was on Avenue L. And... Uh, uh, I'll tell you a, a, a unique thing about that. Uh, I, the water was coming down the street a little bit in the gutters on Avenue Well. This is the first street below Pennsylvania Avenue. That's the lower part of Mount Morris. And uh, the water was coming down the, the gutters, and uh, so I walked up a block from his house to see, you know, where this water was coming from. And uh, there was a, a drain up there and it looked like a cauliflower. The water was just coming up out of that and it was maybe a foot high. It was pushing up out of the drain. Out of the drain from the river because the water level, was, the water, the ice had forced the water that high. And uh, so by the time I walked back to his house, which is only a block, uh, the, the whole street was full of water coming down. This maybe started with the drains, but then it, it eventually yeah, ran down yes. the... And uh, when we drove away, ice chunks were going down the street. Okay, because the river was full of ice. Yes, and of course, uh, the first thing that came down the street was the water, but then the ice followed, and the ice ch chunks actually went down through Avenuel, and out on Pennsylvania Avenue as well, down around uh, Betty's house. Yeah. I have a picture of my father with a huge ice cake. Awesome. Uh, these were big chunks of ice, right? Oh, yes. They were thick. Uh, some of them, oh, they looked like they must have been uh, two feet thick at least or more. Or more. Yeah. Uh, that's pretty heavy ice. Yeah. But we were talking on the phone about some ways to maybe prevent these, and we were saying you were mentioning maybe like clearing some trees downriver. Yes, that kind on of uh, Meshippacong uh, Island, uh, the Corps of Engineers uh, cleared off a path. Now, this is the what we consider the first place where it catches. Uh, you know, it's a low spot in the river, it's an island uh, that's normally not flooded except when the river comes up. And uh, that, it had uh, some pretty good uh, trees on it. And uh, it was thought that that was the, the starting point for ice jams. So they came through with a program to cut a swath down through that island so that if it happened again, that the ice wouldn't actually catch, that it would keep flowing down. And just for context, that's a few miles downriver from Matamoros, right? Uh, yes, just about two miles below Matamoros, yeah. The New Jersey side. It seems like the, the sharp turn in the river and that island with the trees, or yes. maybe that, that combination's the not combination, good. Uh, uh, I, th I think it's it. So they, they, they maybe cut some brush and trees, but that's been a while, right? It's been a good 10 years or so, and... I would imagine it's pretty well grown up, and uh, it doesn't take trees long to recover. Ten years is, uh, 
you have a pretty nice tree run. You know, I do flood, flood resiliency work all over the country, and I noticed within about five to seven years of a flood, it's fresh in everyone's mind. But when you get out beyond maybe seven, eight, ten years, people start forgetting about it. Do you think the recollections of 1981 are still pretty fresh here, or do you think it's long enough ago uh, that I, most people I forgot? Think, no, I think uh, the old-timers like me remembered it. And, uh, of course, we remember many other floods, you know, that weren't as bad. Uh, but I think generally... Uh, we've gone on and that's in the, the, the bar, ancient history the bar history you know <laughs> yeah no it is interesting how we forget about things and, and in a case like this it sounds like there maybe are some things we can do downriver, you know to maybe help uh, help the ice from getting jammed but i've gone by that uh, you can just see part of it from uh, the uh, jersey road new jersey road and uh you can see that it's it's grown up pretty good, and I and I know they haven't paid much attention to it in the, these last years, you know. So uh, I think that was a, probably a good idea. It was one of the things that could be done, but it's got to be maintained. Yeah. What What about ideas to break the ice up, like uh, dynamite, heavy oh, equipment? They tried. They tried that. I think back in 1904, 1905, they had. Uh, some uh, uh, airplanes that came up with bombs, and we have pictures of them, but it never worked, really. Is it just there's so much ice for so many miles that well, you... Yeah, and, and you're only disturbing the top of it. Now, uh, maybe if you used a bigger bomb, but then you started getting hazardous, more hazardous, you know. Sure. Uh, I think the idea was to put an explosive charge on top of the ice and sort of just give, it, it. A, give it a jolt and uh, have it loosen up. Uh, but the efforts to do that in the past didn't work. No. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I've, some things I've read have said sometimes it'll be miles of ice, and um, you know it's hard to maybe just have one explosive to take care of the jam. You know. Yeah, maybe. But uh, this is uh, quite a quite a jammed area. I wanted to provide some housekeeping notes at this point. Bill Clark mentioned the plan to drop bombs from airplanes during the 1904 ice jam. He's right in his perspective that explosives were discussed as a way to break up numerous ice jams before. However, it's likely that detonating dynamite was discussed in 1904 instead of dropping bombs out of airplanes, as the Wright brothers had just embarked on their first flight a few months before this jam on December 17, 1903. Dynamite was a big part of the discussion following the 1981 ice jam flood. In a public meeting after the event, local residents expressed anger that more could have been done to prevent the ice jam. Dynamite was one idea that was discussed. Rivermaster Robert Fish responded to this proposal by stating that dynamite could not have made a difference since large chunks of ice extended for miles upriver. His argument was that the ice was just too extensive for explosives to make any difference and referred to this disaster as a natural event or act of God that could not have been prevented. Incidentally, dropping bombs out of airplanes on ice jams has been proposed in other countries. In April of 2020, the mayor of Wood Buffalo, Alberta, Canada requested for bombs to be dropped on a 15-mile ice jam near his city. As far as I can tell, no bombs were dropped in that event. However, the Russians dropped bombs on a 25-mile ice jam in the Sakona River in 2016. You can see the YouTube video online. Sakona is spelled S-U-K-A. 
H-O-N-A. Now let's get back to the conversation with Bill Clark and hear more about Ice Jam Impacts on the Pennsylvania, New York, New Jersey, Tri-State. Bill, we've talked a lot about your eyewitness account of the 1981 Ice Jam flood. Do you know about impacts from other floods in history around the Pennsylvania, New York, New Jersey, Tri-State? And if so, does anything stand out to you in history as a major flood impact? You know, there's one story where or or part of our history is uh, that the bridge at uh, Mill Rift, which is really a high bridge, washed down and actually hit the Matamoros Bridge and took it out. So a bridge upstream actually was was washed down river. It rode on, the the stories are, and I think this was back uh, 1900 thereabouts, or maybe a little bit before. Maybe in 1904? Yeah, I can find the actual date. But anyway, one of the early uh, Mill Rift bridges actually washed out during an ice jam and rode on the ice uh, down to Matamor. And I looked it up because I thought, well, it had to be a wooden bridge. And it wasn't. It was a metal bridge. So imagine if you're at the Port Jervis Matamoros Bridge, you're looking upstream, and here comes another bridge coming towards you yeah, down the river. Or, or part of it, you know, yeah. even. Uh, that would be scary. But uh, th- th- what the papers reported was that actually it took out the Matamoros Bridge. Wow. So you have an upstream bridge washing downstream and then taking out a second bridge. So you have multiple. Now you have two bridges floating downriver with all these huge chunks of ice. Right. Uh, At the time, we had a uh, suspension bridge. Uh, You know, so they had to rebuild. They had to build a new bridge here after that probably 1904 event. Yes. Yeah, I did not know that. That's really interesting history. Uh, that's yeah. The reason why is uh, I'm a railroader. Besides, you know, and uh, oh, you're in a good place for that. This is a <laughs> lot of railroads around here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, and uh, I've always been concerned. And not only that, we had a railroad bridge here at one time. It was one of the first bridges uh, for, across the river here. Across the river, and matter of fact, the uh, the abutment is still here. The pier out in the middle is pretty well washed away. So did trains come into Matamoros? Uh, no. Uh, it was uh, a private road. The area uh, had promised to, or, or their original plans were to cross over into Pennsylvania here at Port Jervis and Matamoros. And uh, when they got this far and they started looking at uh, building the railroad on this side, they they came to the realization that the mountains here, just above Matamoros, were pretty uh, difficult to climb. So they came up, came up with an alternate plan. Instead of crossing here, they would cross at Mill Rift, uh, which they did. But uh, because they had planned on, on crossing here at Matamoros, uh, the local uh, businessmen sort of forced them into building a bridge anyway, which they did. And it was a wooden bridge. But there was no train over it. Uh, no, or, and they, they, it wasn't, uh, the train never went over that wooden bridge. However, it did blow down after about, I think it was 13, 14 years. The, the bridge that, the railroad bridge that was built across the river, up river from us, up at Mill Rift, was that the one that washed down in the ice no, jam or a different uh, one? The, the first, first the railroad bridge here blew down, actually. It was a wooden bridge. That's about the life of an uncovered uh, wooden bridge, about 14 years, 13, 14 years. Okay. And, of course, there probably wasn't any maintenance uh, because who was going to maintain it? Now, they, they used wagons and stuff like that, and people crossed it by foot. But the uh, first wooden bridge uh, uh, blew down, 
And uh, then later on, they did build a, uh, uh, a metal, uh, an iron bridge, and uh, that was up. And uh, what took that out was a, an ice jam, by the way. It was. Yes. Uh, it was damaged. This was 1903, 1904. Uh, 1903, uh, they, they sometimes refer to that as the pumpkin flood. Now, the 1903 flood, and you know, there was only about six months difference there between the flood and the ice jam. So there was a rainfall flood in October, right, of 03, I think. Yes. The pumpkin flood, and then the ice jam flood came just a few and months I, later. Right. Uh, it was something like uh, March, I think in March, uh, there was an ice jam. Can so, you, six, you know what, six months apart or something like that? Yes. So that's uh, the uh, uh, ice jam in the la uh, latter year took out the railroad uh, iron bridge. Well, Bill, so we're talking about impacts of ice jams on these bridges. You're a, you're a railroad buff. You know a lot about railroads. We're right across the river here from the Erie Line, right, that, uh, that runs across from Port Jervis. Do you know if any ice jams or floods ever just damaged the line? I mean, we know it damaged some of the, the bridges, but what about just the line that's right next to the river? Well, as far as floods, it, it took the Shihola uh, uh, arch out. They had a bridge up there that went mm -hmm. out. Yes, I'm sure there, in the history, there were uh, many times where it washed out the smaller bridges and so on. Yes, uh, landslides. Sure. Uh, I had some buddies that were involved with the uh, landslide. Uh, they came down and uh, actually blocked the tracks. They, they thought they were going to end up in the river, erect the, the uh, train. For context of our listeners, there's quite a bit of topography around here. We're technically north of the Poconos, a little bit west of the Catskills, but it's pretty mountainous with a lot of cliffs and ridges and um, a lot of topography going steeply into these valleys. Well, that wraps up our interview with Bill Clark. Bill, thank you so much for taking time to share insights about ice jam floods with us. Your eyewitness testimony and deep knowledge of the local history really helped us to understand the context of ice jam floods and their impacts a whole lot better. When I do field research in a flood zone, I like to interview multiple eyewitnesses if possible. George and Betty Riggs, members of the Matamoros Westfall Historical Society, met with me in Matamoros to share their memories of the 1981 ice jam flood. My mother and her friends used to play with George when they were little kids in the woods just west of Twin Lakes, so I felt that I had a personal connection to them. Their testimony gives us an idea about the speed of this flood as they share that they carried their kids out of the flood zone to safety on the night of the flood in February of 1981. Anyhow, I, gra I grabbed the five-year-old, he had the two-year-old, and we carried them up the street in their pajamas. And so, like, all the neighborhood went to what was the elementary school. Now it's a nursing home. When we were there, a couple hours later, we didn't, we... Everybody thought in 1955, where we live, we got nothing. And that was the big rainfall flood from Hurricane Diane, I think. So we just assumed, you know what they say about that. Um, well, because you had not flooded in 1955, you yeah, thought you'd be okay. And we'll be fine. So some of the guys, did you go with them? Took a walk, and they came back, and they looked at me like, did we tell her? You know? Oh my gosh! I mean, these are my neighbors, and is it so? You had evacuated. Is this people that knew what happened in yeah, your neighborhood? Some people that in our neighbors, some of them went there also. So we came home to quite a surprise. 
So when you left, you just thought, just out of precaution, oh, you're leaving, but you you didn't really think you'd probably flood, no, right? No, no, no. So how much water got in your place? Well, it pushed a hole in our foundation. Now, my house was built in 1908 or 1910, I think, and there was water that had to be pumped out of the basement. Did the ice have something to do with the hole being pushed in the yeah. basement, or do you think the like a whirlpool? Wasn't that the story? A whirlpool in the back you know, pushed it in. Really? And our foundation is old, and it's just stones and that laid up. It's not mortar, yeah. so it's just stones and all that. And it just made a hole, and it, there was up to it never got on the first floor. It was just to the bottom of the rafters. I see. So it was really in the basement. Yeah, it was the where, basement. I see. Yeah. yeah. And then when and then the garage doors were open, like. I don't know, two feet up. Oh, the, the flood water lifted the garage yeah. doors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lifted the garage, yeah. Can you see it? Well, <coughs> yeah, and we see the, the yeah, there's a, I in this publication, it shows your garage. garage. Was that the worst flood that ever was at, at your property there? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We never had anything really before. Did the water just come up and down, like after the ice left? Yes. or? Yeah. Yes, yeah. When the jam broke. So when the, when the ice jam broke, then it went down. But just in the, in the hours that it backed up, it came up quickly. It came yeah. up quick. We had small blocks of ice go through the garage windows, but it didn't hit the house windows, just the garage windows. Okay, interesting. So it sounds like the, wherever the water went, there was ice on it, or there was ice oh, in, sure. in the water. Like the size of couches. Mm. Wow, so ice the size of couches, like, like big blocks of ice were being pushed around. And you know how heavy that is. George and Betty Riggs provide valuable perspective in this short interview. Betty recalled not being concerned about flooding from the 1981 ice jam flood because their home did not flood during Hurricane Diane in 1955. Diane inflicted the worst flooded memory for this part of the country, dumping more than 10 inches of rain in parts of Pike County, Pennsylvania in August of 1955. The storm made landfall in North Carolina, but the remnants produced catastrophic flooding in portions of the Mid-Atlantic and New England states. Betty shared a perspective of false security because past floods had not previously inundated her home. This is the number one reason I find that people underestimate their flood risk. I encounter this perspective frequently, whether I'm in a town threatened by riverine flooding or a coastal location vulnerable to storm surge. I live in Galveston, Texas, site of the deadliest natural disaster in U.S. history. On September 8, 1900, a Category 4 hurricane struck the Texas coast, sending a 16-foot storm surge across Galveston Island that killed six to 8,000 people in the city. When I take people on my Galveston hurricane tour, I like to take them to Ida Smith Austin's house at 1502 Market Street. Ida's house still stands there today. It's the place where she wrote out the storm in 1900. Ida left an insightful diary entry on November 6, 1900, about two months after the storm, that shares her perspective as the 1900 storm approached the city. Two months after the storm, she wrote, I was busy about my domestic affairs Saturday, the day of the storm, arranging my house, when I heard a man who ran up the street exclaim, My God, the waters of the bay and gulf have met at 15th Street. I went on the gallery to realize that what he said was only too true, but I felt no uneasiness and remarked to my niece, we have nothing to fear. The water has never been over our place, and I just felt it could not come. In a few minutes, we heard the lapping of the salt water against the sidewalk, and then it slowly crept into the yard. A little later in the journal entry, she writes, in an incredibly short amount of time, water surged over the gallery, driven by a furiously blowing wind. 
at the end of the paragraph, she writes, we opened all downstairs and let the water flow through. Soon it stood three feet in all the rooms. So here she was saying she just felt like she could never flood because she had never flooded before. And at the end of the entry, she writes that there was three feet of flood water in all of their rooms. Many of us would feel the same way that Ida Smith Austin and Betty Riggs felt if our home had never flooded before. We might downplay the risk of flooding uh, from a threatening storm because in our mind, our home is not flooded before. And so it won't flood in the future. In our human perspective, a few decades is a long time, and we've experienced a lot of life in that time. However, as we zoom out in space and time, we see that floods inundate new areas all the time, and we also realize we don't know the thousands of years of flood history for our community that likely inundated many of our properties long before we lived there. After the interview, I chatted with George and Betty Riggs, and I admired that they took a very pragmatic approach to recovery, quickly took steps to get their flood damage repaired, and move on with their lives after the storm. They were very gracious to take some time and meet with me and share about their memories of that tragic night in February of 1981. George and Betty, the 1981 flood was devastating for both Port Jervis, New York, and Matamoros, Pennsylvania. Do you know if there were any fatalities from that flood? and tried to get her out of her house and she said no and then she got scared and she left by herself and she was swept away and they found her body wait so she had an opportunity to to be rescued and she said no and then she got afraid and left she thought this would be like 55 you know like people thought so that was so there was one fatality of her being swept away yeah but besides that, it sounds like um, you were saying that you were kind of lucky and that it, it could have been worse maybe that there were It could weren't. have been worse. It could have. I was very saddened to hear about the fatality in the 1981 ice jam flood there on the tri-state. You know, these ice jam floods not only move in so quickly, but they're also very erratic. I found the following river log that just amazed me. I've never seen anything like this in all of my flood research. Listen to this three-hour log of the river conditions in the tri-state the night of the flood. At 12.45 a.m. after midnight, the ice was jamming below the tri-states and began to raise the river level. About 40 minutes later at 1.25 a.m., the river level was reportedly going down. At 2.15 a.m., the r- river level was going up. At 2.40 a.m., the Milford Bridge downstream from Port Jervis was called. The ice there was on the move. The gauge had dropped 20 points in 20 minutes. Listen to this. 3.25 a.m., river is coming across the road. Five minutes later, the river's dropped three feet. Ten minutes after that, at 3.40 a.m., the Chronicle says that all hell broke loose. This is just unbelievable. The water's going down several feet, up several feet, and just is very erratic and very unpredictable. If you ever get caught in an ice jam flood, don't turn your back on it. Even if you see the water levels rapidly dropping, they can come right back up because it all depends on that ice jam and how well it's damming. And at, at times it's breaking up and then it's reforming. So don't turn your back on an ice jam. They're very unpredictable and very erratic floods. Wow, there's something about the eyewitness accounts of these floods that really makes the impacts hit home and helps us understand how important it is to mitigate against these floods. In this podcast, we talked about mitigation options for ice jam floods. In my research, I found that these actions fall into two categories, actions we can take before ice jams form and actions we can take after ice jams form. We discussed several options we can take before ice jams form in this podcast, like cutting down trees near the river that would catch ice chunks and exacerbate an ice jam. We also talked about widening river channels 
to allow more ice and water to flow through an area. And water management related to maintaining adequate flows can also be an important step for minimizing ice jam formation. Once an ice jam forms, we discussed options to break up the ice, such as the use of heavy equipment that pounds the ice from a bridge or explosives like dynamite that can be used to break up the ice. My research revealed that such actions are a bit of a long shot with low success rates. However, a mitigation option that does seem to be working takes place north and east of the tri-state area in our story. In the capital district of New York near Albany, tugboats are now deployed along the Mohawk River and Erie Canal to break up ice. These boats are at Lock 7 along the Erie Canal by the Vischer Ferry Dam. I visited them shortly after recording these segments. The boats are deployed as part of a pilot program for New York State's $300 million Reimagine the Canals initiative and are used to mitigate ice jam flood impacts in places like Schenectady's historic stockade district, which has been flooded by ice jams before. Special thanks to our four guests in this podcast episode, Tom Vicciarello, Director of Emergency Management for the City of Port Jervis, New York, Bill Clark, President of the Matamoros-Westfall Historical Society in Matamoros, Pennsylvania, and George and Betty Riggs, long-term residents of Matamoros. When I recorded these segments, the Northeast was enjoying a mild early part of the winter, but all this changed in early January as the Northeast went into a deep freeze for most of January and February. A sudden warm-up in mid-February prompted the National Weather Service to issue flood watches for some counties in upstate New York, and ice jams were mentioned in the local weather discussions. More warm weather returned in late February, with temperatures around the Pennsylvania, New York, New Jersey tri-state soaring into the mid-60s on February 23rd. Will the sudden warm-up lead to rapid breaking up of river ice and cause ice jams? Well, that's more common if a accompanied by heavy rain as well. And fortunately, the weather is forecast to cool off after this last warm-up. In fact, both the 6-10 to day outlook and the 8-14 to day outlook from the National Weather Service predict near-normal temperature and precipitation, which is good news for not seeing too many ice jams in this region of the Northeast. As we move into March, temperatures in the day are usually getting into the mid to upper 30s in the region, and uh, near normal temperatures will uh, lead to slow melting of snow and ice, and probably not the rapid onset of ice jams. Incidentally, the north central and northeastern states are the main places we look for ice jam floods, especially in the late winter and early spring. The map of the U.S. Army Corps Ice Jam database shows most of the ice jams in this region, although the Pacific Northwest of observes severe winter weather, particularly in the higher elevations of the Cascades. The river valleys in the Pacific Northwest are typically above freezing, influenced by the Pacific Ocean. This means the Pacific Northwest rivers like the Columbia do not observe ice jams because the weather does not get cold enough at low elevations for the river to freeze. Hopefully we can make it through the spring without any ice jams this year, but if they do threaten, this podcast will help listeners to learn more about the characteristics of these odd but fascinating floods. On behalf of the GeoTrek production team, this is Dr. Hal Needham signing off until the next episode of the GeoTrek podcast.
Hey, GeoTrekkers, thanks so much for your faithful support of our movement. Please subscribe to our podcast, leave us a review, and join us in our Facebook group to continue the conversation. We view each podcast episode as a starting point, not a finish line, to introduce you to a new topic, and our online community is there to give you a place to discuss these topics, interact with others in the community, and sometimes interact directly with the podcast guest. Thanks for being part of the GeoTrek community.